Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Foul Front Podcast, a part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective. I'm your host, Ben Page, and this is your source for hunting, outdoors, and conservation conversations. In an eclectic and sometimes unorganized fashion, I appreciate you coming by. Okay, hey, uh, welcome to the Foul Front. Today, I'm joined by Max Ackerman. Now, Max is a freelance photographer, videographer, uh, creative storyteller. He currently works a lot with hardcore brands, and you probably know him from the hardcore brands, the glory days, uh, the one with Tony Vandemore, uh, those videos that went up a couple months back. He's also um, a subpar motocross racer. Uh, Max, is is that a pretty telling intro? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think that's good. Um, motocross, a little in the past. I, st- I still get to ride a little bit, though. Yes, yeah. We'll, we'll get to that here in just a, in a second. But, uh, Max, uh, where, where are you at right now? Right now, I'm in northern Illinois. I'm at home, sitting in my office. Uh, just had a night of, night of scouting teal and kind of getting my, my cards together and see what I'm going to do for work tomorrow. Nice, nice. And now you, you said you didn't find any teal, uh, is what I heard. So, yeah, we found, we found a couple. Um, let's see, we open up here on Sunday, uh, in Illinois. We open up, I'm sorry, in Illinois, we open up on Sunday for goose. And then Wisconsin opens up for teal and goose. Um, luckily the end of my road tees into Wisconsin. So I've yeah. just got a little jump up, but we're actually going to head. Further up a little ways, about an hour from my place, and it's going to be a lot of work to get back where we need to be, but it'll be fun, and hopefully it'll pay off, and we'll have some good footage from it. Yeah, no one cares how hard you work on the first hunt, right? You know, that's kind of, I'm not going to lie, I was I was filming while we were scouting tonight, so I didn't have the, the hard part, I just had to sit in the boat with the camera and film the other guys doing the work, but it was like, rowing the boat, getting out, pushing the boat. And I was like, man, already, yeah, now what's like, your, what's your, we're, we're starting strong on the, on the first day. Now what's your, what's your boat situation? Cause people, Oh, I tell someone, Oh man, I, I say, Hey, I got a boat. And then, uh, 
you know, they, they, they create this illusion in their mind and uh, then they are sorely disappointed uh, when, oh, when they see my boat. So our, our, our situation with a boat would be a hundred percent how you just described it. Um, it. It sounds real cool. You know, we get to duck hunt out of a boat, but um, I actually myself don't own a boat. Um, two of my buddies that I hunt with, they own boats and it's, I mean, it's your straight up 14 foot flat bottom boat with whatever you can find as a tiller to throw on the back of it. So yeah, one is the one that I'll be in is probably a 1980s boat with a 1960s motor. So it's, it's nothing glorious, but you know what? I think it's a, I think he's got maybe 250 or $300 invested in it and it's going to, it's going to get us to where we need to be to, to shoot some birds. So that's all that I, matters. Yeah. I, I almost put my wife in the hospital um, because I, we were at a get together and some guy was talking about his boat and I said, Oh, you got a boat. And I said, I got a boat. And uh, my wife, uh, she's not very fond of my armada, my backyard armada, as she calls it. And I almost put her in the hospital from her rolling her eyes so hard. I think they were going to have to put one of them eyes back in her head. Um, Cause you know, everybody's, Oh, I got this, you know, this wakeboarding boat. And I'm talking about like a little, you know, tinfoil thing with a couple fishing seats on it and maybe an electric motor. So, but you know what? It it does the job and that that's your boat. Damn right. It does. That's, that's my boat. Yeah. And I think, I think with so many like manufacturers and just the persona overall in the, in the waterfowl industry, like everybody thinks you need to have an Excel or you need a mud buddy or a prodigy or, you know, whatever it be. It's like, you know what? You use what you can afford. If there's a will, there's a way you can get it done. I saw, and everyone's going to think I'm lying. I kid you not. Um, I saw in Kansas, two college kids, on a freaking like blow up mattress, like kiddie pool thing, getting back into one of these sloughs. No, no, no kidding. Hey, so. you gotta, you gotta do what you, you gotta do. I mean, I remember when I first started hunting, there was times where I actually did own a boat. Then I had a 14 foot flat bottom with a, a homemade 13 horse mud motor on it. And I remember loading that thing down with four guys and all the decoys. And it's like, that was looking back now. It's like, wow, that was very stupid. But you know what? Like, that's what we lived for was going out there and it didn't matter. We'd, we'd shuffle guys back and forth from the bridge. And if we shot two birds, we were happy, you know, and yeah. to, to me, that's definitely what it's all about. But I've, I've seen said- some crazy stuff with, with boats that are too small doing, doing the job they're doing. Oh yeah. Now you said, uh, uh, Illinois starts its uh, early goose season this weekend. Next weekend or this weekend? Yeah, this weekend on Sunday, our early honker season opens up. Yeah, I got uh, two of my boys from around here. They're they're college kids. They're we're in like a scouting party. We kind of scout and we share scouts and information and and hunts. Um, we don't always hunt together, but they just texted me. They they said that they were heading up there to uh, get on some early birds and. I thought that was mighty ambitious of them. Yeah, you know, honestly, um, this year's a lot different than years past last year. We had a ton of sheet water during early season, 
and it seems like temperatures were a little bit cooler. And I know that a few of the days that we were out, we could see migrators coming from the north, which were, in my opinion, just the molts or the non-breeders. But this mm-hmm. year, it's like crops got in late. Not a whole lot of people had wheat. Any cover crop that people did was oats, and that stuff's like knee-high right now. We don't have a lot of dairy farms, so there's no silage fields. So our birds right now, I mean, it's just your regular city honkers that are sitting in town eating Kentucky blue that's just been sprayed by a green lawn or whatever. And I don't think they're leaving there. They're just going to go from there to, to the little pond right next to the yard. And that's what they're going to do. So I think early yeah. honkers for us, exactly where I'm at, it's going to be terrible. Now you go an hour to the East, get closer to Lake Michigan and you get more of the little pothole stuff and a lot, a lot bigger, um, population of resident geese and i think i think that's where the early season will be fun here's a question for you so uh obviously with all the flooding that we've had in it sounds like you guys have actually i know you guys have had it as well um so we've just had god man i I, all my walk-in spots are they're 20 foot underwater right now um but what i what i've noticed is there's a lot of crops that got in late you know what i mean so, uh, you know, on a macro scale, there's less, you know, there's less crops and there'll be a later harvest. And I think that'll be interesting. I think a lot of people are looking at that as a pretty dangerous thing. But here's the other thing uh, that I was kind of looking at is there's there's some fields that got in right at the same at the right time. And th- those those farmers are going to harvest it at the, at the right time. And uh, that stuff's going to be ready. You know what I mean? And so you're going to have these little pockets, these little areas that uh, are ripe for the pickings, I feel like, and stuff that the, the birds are used to, um, just like little isolated pockets. Now, maybe on a macro scale, yeah, you might see less, but I, I don't know. I feel like I feel like there's going to be a couple of trucks sitting outside of, uh, you know, a smaller amount of cornfields uh, this year here in Kansas. What, what, do you, what do you think? Man, I... My opinion on that is, um, luckily where I'm at, there is not, I mean, it's not like you can't just go knock on somebody's door and say, Hey, can I get in this field for a day? Like people around here are pretty, uh, they're pretty particular with who they let hunt their stuff. And, and a lot of times it's, it's people that have been hunting it for years. Um, we've got a few fields that are up on hilltops that are, going to be cut, you know, around the time that they normally would. And I think that as long as the the decrease in temperature happens at the right time and we get pushes at the right time when those certain fields are cut, I think that we're going to we're going to line up all right and our hilltop fields are going to be going to be really good, but man, if we get if we get a cold a real cold uh front and a, a big push early on before they get crops out uh, that's what's making me nervous because, I mean, granted, we're going to have... They're just going to hop over. Yeah, we're going to have resident birds that are going to stick around, but I I really hope they don't overshoot us this year. And our, our yeah. water situation is, believe it or not, I mean, our river is really low right now. I don't know if they have the, no. gates, the gates shut um, to the north of us or what, but it's... It, we Unfortunately... Uh, the rest of the, the country couldn't use it, but we could definitely use some rain right now. 
Interesting. Good. I, I guess I thought, I guess I thought everybody kind of was flooded out, but and our, our rivers are, our rivers around here are a lot different. You know, when I was filming down in Missouri and doing that stuff with Vandemore, I, I got to be up on the levee and see the Missouri river and how the flood actually impacted people and mm-hmm. how it floods down there. And it's like, you come up here, your river banks are a lot bigger and, and it seems like the rivers, uh, more, more down, down to grade. Typically like that, yeah. it's kind of down in the valley. So it never really floods. Like we don't have true river bottom stuff up here, but I mean, we had our high times where it would hit ditches and make its way out. You don't have, a, you don't have a meander, you don't have meandering, uh, rivers, I guess is what you're saying. Like, Absolutely. How it, goes, how it goes through like a, a riparian, like, uh, low plains area. Yeah. Yep. Okay. That was, there's some dude just pulling his hair out right now that knows about waterways and how they're actually supposed to be called. And he's just pulling his hair out. How, how I described that. Oh yeah. Um, I don't, and, and too, <laughs> like, I don't have the first thing about, about water. I actually, I'm not too fond of water. I'm, I'm a field guy. I like pulling my trailer right into a field and setting up. I don't like being around water, but with this job, it's kind of part of the gig. Yeah. I'm, you're, I'm no riverologist. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. All right. Okay, Max. We know that you're from Illinois, right? Born yes, and bred. Sir. Born and bred okay. right here in the same town. How did you get into hunting? Man, that is actually it's it's interesting because growing up I never I never had an interest in hunting. I never had an interest in guns. I didn't Generally, all I cared about then was riding dirt bikes and playing hockey. And, um, when I got into high school, I kind of was hanging out with some, some buddies and they were all the, the country kids, if you will. And, uh, they kind of got Trump me, club. they got me into hunting and uh, yeah, yeah, the Trump club. They got me into hunting and, uh, it really took off from there. I'm kind of the person that when I do something, I put 110% effort into it. So. It wasn't long after they got me into it where I noticed I was going more than they were and they more or less were kind of the weekend warrior type deals and I was like eat, sleep, and breathe hunting at that point. So I got into it from buddies at high school and man, it's been a wild ride ever since. Yeah. And okay, so two things that kind of brings this out and it revolves around uh fathers, I guess. Um yeah. I guess I'm assuming that. Uh, so how did your dad take into that? Honestly, man, my dad, like, uh, growing up, we, we fished, you know, we'd go to Canada mm-hmm. and, and fish up there. And, uh, we had a little lake house, I don't know, a couple hours North of here. We'd do some fishing up there, but, uh, as far as shooting and hunting, uh, I mean, still to this day, they, he doesn't, he doesn't do either of them. So he'll, he'll get out and shoot a little bit if, if we invite him out, but, he is not a hunter. Nobody, yeah, nobody in my family really. I mean, aunts, uncles, uh, distant. I mean, it's I'm I'm the black sheep. That's for sure. Wow. Okay. Well, we will touch on that here in just a second because uh, that is that is super interesting. Uh, the other comment that I wanted to make, and I wanted to get your opinion on this. Um. I often feel like the guys that grew up hunting. Um. You know. They were going when they were six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Uh, it's always been in their life and all this stuff. 
Um, they're very, you know, you can't take, you can't say that they're not avid hunters, um, to this day. Uh, but the guys that kind of get into it late, there's a difference. I feel like there's just a tiny bit more edge or a little bit more hunger in it. Uh, at least it's what I perceive and being like a late onset hunter myself and kind of perceiving how people think, uh, how people think of you, um, as, you know, oh, well, how long you been hunting uh, waterfowl? Uh, about seven years. And they're like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. And it's like, there's a, there's like almost a drive to learn more, to consume it more. It, it like consumes them more since they didn't have that. They didn't always have it. What do you, what, what's your take on that? Yeah, I would think that, um, and at least that's how it was with me. Uh, I don't know if it's my personality or if other people are like minded, but it seems like, there's just that certain age where if you get into it when you're, you know, 15, 16, 17 years old or, or even later at that, that point, you're, you want to learn, you want to do things on your own. You're kind of starting to be independent in life. And I think the drive for people that have picked it up at the later part in life, they're maybe using it to fill a void or, you know, something to that nature. And I think, I think there's definitely more drive and people that pick it up when it's later. Cause that it's, I don't know. Uh, that's, that's a tough question to answer. Yeah. Without, without well, it's making a tough question it to answer pissing some people off. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the short frame of it. It's, it's almost, yeah. I guess, kind of goes back to the, you know, certain things being a privilege and certain things being a right. And it's like, you know, the people that grew up hunting, I just think that they always expect they're going to be able to do it. And the people that kind of started later, I think they just, they they understand what life without hunting's like, and then what li- what life with hunting's like, and they work harder for it. I uh, I had a guy I was talking to once, and uh, he, he you know he asked him, well how long have you how long you been hunting waterfowl? I said, oh this is year I think when I first started this podcast I'd been hunting for like five years or almost six years, and he goes why you got a podcast about waterfowl hunting then, and I was like. Thought about it for like probably 10 seconds. I said, cause I, I can't shut up about waterfowl hunting. That's why dude. Like, I don't know. I, the thing that's frustrating. I mean, my personality, I'd have been like, because I do, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because you, you, you want to engage with people and you want to talk about the thing that is on your mind, you know, night and day. And that's the whole experience. I think. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's unexplainable. Yeah. One thing that you just said there, and then we'll get off this topic right after, after this is, uh, I, and I'd never framed it like this. I was always, I'm always jealous of, man, I wish my dad would have been into waterfowl hunting when I was little so that I could, you know, this could be year 23 of my waterfowl hunting. Uh, but then like you just said is not knowing a life before, uh, waterfowl hunting and, I wonder, you know, what that difference would be. And obviously I know that I probably wouldn't be here. So, all right, let's, uh, we'll get back into it. Okay. So, um, how did you go from not hunting, you know, you, you, you know, got into it in high school and, uh, now you're filming it. Let's fill the, let's fill the people in. So, I kind of, uh, you know, through high school and stuff, I took some photography courses. 
and uh, I enjoyed it. And my later part of high school life, I did what all kids did and all kids do, I should say. And I like to have fun and stopped using a camera and went out and, you know, hung out with friends and rode dirt bikes and then fast forward a little bit. And it was, I was 22 years old at the time. This was in 2012. Um, I was racing motocross all over the place and I got hurt. And when I was hurt, I, uh, I was on the couch and at that time I was doing a lot of whitetail hunting. So I was watching whitetail shows and I just, was like, man, I, I kind of want to start filming my stuff and I think I could do a lot of this stuff. And so I bought a camera and the rest is history. <laughs> I started, started at that point and picked up a camera and started editing again and it just progressed from there. Okay. So in our, in our pre conversations here, uh, you said something to me that is in contrast to what a lot of people in photography and videography tell me. Um, there, so many times people say, camera don't matter. You know, um, a great photographer can go out with a, a Kodak, you know, re, what do you call it? The reusable, not the, not even the reusable ones. All oh, like the Polaroid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they'll go, they'll go kill it. Um, but you kind of said something that was like, kind of piqued my interest. And you said, you know, there was kind of a catalyst for you. And it was a certain piece of gear that really elevated or ramped up kind of your production and kind of catapulted you into like, okay, this is where I'm at now. Yeah. For me, um, you know, when I first, the first camera that I bought was a Canon XHA1. And I filmed with that for a while, and that was kind of right when the DSLR stage was was getting set, and Heartland was doing some stuff with DSLRs, and then Held Ground Outdoors was filming with them. And after, I would say, about a year of the XHA1, I think I was pretty much tapped out on its capabilities. So I went ahead and purchased a Sony um, FS700. And when I did that, it was like there was so much more opportunity for me and I could shoot stuff in slow motion. And that's when kind of the slow motion craze started. And it's like, you know, I feel like for me that that camera specifically was a, a huge breakthrough point And uh, it it made my career excel a lot faster. So you get hurt and you're on your bike, um, out doing motocross stuff and you're sitting there on the couch all laid up and you're watching TV. Uh, you're watching, uh, what just whitetail stuff, right? Um, well, do you remember any of the shows? Yeah. I mean, like Heartland, Heartland Bowhunter and Hell Ground Outdoors have always been my, my go to for, um, whitetail stuff because. Yeah. It's it's more cinematography than it is videography, if you will. You yeah. know, you, you actually see the the creation that they're making with the camera. It's not just hit record and let something unfold. They're they're telling the story and and every time you see it you can you know, it's almost with all the B roll shots and, and everything, you almost feel like you're there and, and that's what I like the most about um their work for sure. And it it's definitely inspiring too. 
Yeah. Okay. So you're sitting there watching this stuff. And at this point you had a little bit of camera experience, right? Yep. Okay. So you're, you're, you're watching these shows and you're thinking to yourself, what, like, man, oh, I wonder how they did this shot or, or you know, for, for me, it was like, I instantly, after I kind of grew, I don't want to say grew a liking, but after I got so infatuated with the shows, it was like, I wanted to start, you know, breaking things down. It's like, okay, how are they shooting these shots where they're getting sun flares? It's like, all right, well, they're shooting them early in the day or, you know, later in the afternoon. And it's like just the level that, okay, the amount of persuasion that a sun flare puts on a shot, it's like, okay, you know, so there's one thing. And then you look at another shot and they're shooting time lapses and you're like, all right, well, how do I do that? Well, then before you know it, I'm on the internet researching how to shoot a time lapse. And, uh, you break down certain shots, camera movement, sliders, jibs at that time. That was before gimbals and things like that were around. And it's like, all right, I know that I can do this stuff, but I, I want to figure out how I can do it. Whether that means having to buy sliders, make sliders, uh, intervalometers, whatever it be. And this uh, is in high school. This was out of high school. Oh, this was out of high school. Yeah. When when did you when did you hurt yourself? I was twenty two. You were twenty two. Okay, so you yeah. were in a like a semi adult, and you were riding around on dirt bikes. I was a semi adult that was acting like a child. <laughs> um, yeah. No, at the time I was racing a Open A and two fifty A, which is kind of the local expert oh, you level. Were, you were serious. Yeah, and, you know, we'd go around. I thought you were just at the local, like, uh, you know, gar- uh, garbage pile, like, ramping, you know, ramping off of cardboard and stuff. Oh, no, it was uh, it was a lot of, uh, you know, going and hitting fair races during the week, trying to trying to make money to at least make it back home and, uh, you know, pay for a little bit of dinner and fuel money home. But it was, uh, cool. man, I've, I've raced in the MGM in Vegas. I've all over the United States. It's, it was fun. It was, it definitely wasn't just a, just a backyard riding hobby with the boys. It was, I was fully invested in it. I, uh, well, you just, that made an, I made an ass out of myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's I was trying to make fun of you for crashing your motorcycle, um, which probably not a great place to start when it comes to, uh, you know, humor and comedy. Um, but I didn't, I guess I didn't do the research and, uh, check whether or not you were, uh, MGM level, I guess. Jeez. Yeah, I did. I raced in the MGM and, uh, the arena cross world finals and the intermediate class in 2008, I believe. And then yeah. in 2009, I qualified again and went out there. And then, uh, in 2000, Fall of 2009 was when I moved up to the A class, which is kind of local, local. You know what I know about motocross? There was a, uh, there was a Disney movie about motocross, wasn't there? Like when we were growing up. You know what? That's so like funny that you say that because I just saw that they're coming out with another motocross knockoff where I guess it would be like the two things combined because this guy's like a, he's an army guy. And he goes off and he gets hitting hurt. All, hitting all the checkboxes. He gets off and he goes off and gets gets hurt in the army. And then he they tell him he can't ride again. And he was he was I don't know. I saw it. And I was like, 
gosh, Hollywood's going to botch this one so bad. On both ends of the oh, deal. Yeah. I get yeah, to watch it for the uh, motocross and say, you know, wow, everything they shot was wrong. And, you know, the sounds that they dubbed in were wrong. And you watch it from the, the Army perspective and be like, yep, that's not how oh, it is. <laughs> never, never. Like, I, I don't try to get too caught up in it. But I'm just thinking to myself, like, you couldn't spend, like, you could pay me. You could pay me, like, a $200 a day to just go stay on set. And I just tell you, like, oh, uh, well... <laughs> That guy's wearing his badge on the wrong side. That all that, you know, you, you don't salute with your left hand. Um, and I just, you spend all this money on this stuff and you can't get these little tiny things right to have just like an advisor come in. And it's, it's uh, millions and millions of dollars. That's the yeah, thing. It's like, holy, crazy. you wonder what's like, wrong with the country. I mean, come on. <laughs> you pay me 300 bucks a day. I'll make all the damn sandwiches and I'll tell you what's like, okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll inspect everybody. Uh, all right. Anyways, what, what I, was that? I do that, for half that, but that's me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what, what was that movie called? The one uh, that they're coming out with now, or the one that no, you were no, talking no, about? No, no. Moto, it's, it's literally motocrossed. <laughs> oh, they reached. <laughs> yeah, real, they, real creative. I think, I think actually, with some research, they 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 had another title for it that was like the final lap or something like that. But I don't know why they came out with just motocrossed. Real My brother original. is like a, a philosopher and like a very deep thinker and uh, very well read. And I believe all those Disney movies and all that stuff, you know, they're all like Shakespeare and um, like classical writing applications into pop culture and uh, uh, like little kid stuff. Like, so I, that one's like based off of like a shrew or, or whatever the hell it's called or like 12th night or something like that. Um, I, I remember him talking to me about this. We have, uh, we need to bring it back to waterfowl. Um, <laughs> we can talk all night and it's just going to go, it's going to go round and round. Yeah. Yeah. This is good. Um Okay. So, what's your first job? Your first job uh, filming. Somebody's paying you to film. My first job paid. I I filmed a wedding for uh, my friend's brother. And I think he gave me like, oh, gosh, I don't know. I want to say it was like a couple hundred bucks. And I, I bet I, she was pleased. At the time, too, it's like, I know. I remember I was, I was shooting photos for it, too. So, I shot photos and video. And for a couple hundred bucks, I remember like going down to actually at the time I had a Canon printer. So I like printed all the photos myself and oh my gosh, looking back now, it's like, sorry, Tad, (laughs) sorry, (laughs) I should have never charged you for that. (laughs) Oh man. Was she happy? Cause that, it doesn't matter about what Tad thinks. Uh, I don't, I I don't know. You know, it's kind of one of those deals where I just like handed them off to Tad and it was like, here you go, bud. Thanks. Bye-bye now. You okay. Know. Okay. Uh, I'll reframe the question. The first time someone pays you to film hunting. The first time I got paid to film hunting, that would have been in 2013. I think it would have been 13. Um, I started working for Hallowed Ground Outdoors, which was actually... Actually, I'm sorry. It was 2014. I started working for Hallowed Ground Outdoors, which was actually one of the shows that 
I was watching when I was hurt. And yeah. uh, that was kind of, that was crazy. I ended up there by a, just a, a fluke coincidence, I guess. Um, Joe, sir, he owns Risen Media. He followed me on Facebook and saw some of the shots that I was getting. And he sent me a message on Facebook and he's like, Hey, what do you think about moving out to Iowa and working for me? And, you know, at that time, you're just kind of, I was looking at it and I'm like, yeah, right. Like this guy's, you know, this is, this is a little weird. And then mm-hmm. like, you know, he's like, no, like I'm serious. So we, uh, we worked it out and I had a friend drop me off in Dubuque, Iowa, which is like an hour and a half, uh, west of here. And Joe picked me up and I went to Southern Illinois and filmed with him for the weekend as kind of like my trial period. And after that, I was living in Iowa working at Risen Media. So <laughs> that was kind of my, my first getting paid and all that was all in, all in the same time. And it was a huge step in my career. Yeah. And that's all, that's all waterfowl and like a little bit of turkey, right? Um, hallowed ground is all, it was, oh, like I'm white, sorry, deer, white tail, white tail, white tail, not waterfowl. Yeah. Right. It, it was white tail and, um, turkey. Uh, it was, it was awesome. I had a lot of fun, um, working for those guys and living out there, but eventually the, the time came where I just wanted to come back to Illinois. That's where all my friends were and my family was. Okay. So whitetail filming. Right. Mm-hmm. And we, we haven't got, we haven't really gotten into your waterfowl filming yet, but, um, I, I will kind of try to make the transition there. What's the, what's the difference in not only the subject, uh, I guess the hunter subject and the setting and the differences? What's kind of explain the difference between going from whitetail to waterfowl? Man, the, the difference between the two is like, there's such, I mean, yeah, at the, the end of the day, you're still hunting, but they are such polar opposites because when you're whitetail hunting, you know, you're up in a tree stand, you're filming the host, you know, you're shooting your interview and then you're shooting some cutaways yeah, what, and, and then you're filming deer. Like? Um, most of the time it's, it's, you know, pretty easy going and, uh, you know, you just, Say, yeah, we generally started off with an opener to the hunt. And then whenever something would happen, we would do another quick interview. And, uh, typically I would sit about two feet up and kicked at a 90 degree angle to the left. Mm. So we could talk and, and communicate, but you know, we would go through our, our regular kind of checklist that so that we knew we had the footage from that day. And, um, if, if a story were to unfold, we knew that we were going to have the pieces that we needed. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was fun. Definitely fun. But, uh, there, there was, there was times where when you're stuck in a tree with somebody for long periods of time that you guys, I would say, do get aggravated. You know, there's something somebody does that the other person. Well, yeah, I was going to ask, how do you, how do you piss the host off? Like as a cameraman, what's the, what's, what's the stuff? I mean, okay. Obviously like being loud and all that other stuff, but uh, how else, how else do you piss the host off? Man, I would, I would just, I would say like not agreeing on, you know, 
a shot, <clears throat> excuse me, not agreeing on a shot or, um, you know, some of the, the stipulations of, of being set up as, you know, oh, this camera's not going to work like this or, you know, there's, there's a lot of variables. Um, the only time I really had a problem, <laughs> sorry, sorry, Joe, if you're listening to this, the only time I really had a problem, I remember it was right about the last time that I was, the last couple of weeks that I was working at Riz and I knew I was going back to Illinois. We were in Montana. We'd been hunting for five days straight for their early season whitetail. And it was about a 30 mile an hour wind. My boots were wet. So I borrowed some big size 12 boots from Joe. We had to walk across the creek and we got up in this cottonwood tree that was just deader than a doornail. And the wind was ripping, and I was just, at that point, I was like, I don't have health insurance. You know, I was just paranoid, and that was the only time we had a we had a falling out in the tree. <laughs> Sounds about right, you know. That's, that's, that's good. You never want to climb up in those dead trees. What's the, what's the biggest uh, mess up that you've had as a, um, as a, you know, videographer for, for the hunt? Oh man. Um, we were out. <laughs> it was actually that same trip. Um, we had some, we had, it was a man hunting in Montana is weird because it's so wide open and it was like these deer were popping out on this little point, you know, 500 yards away. Well, as soon as they get in that greenfield with the pivot, they were pretty much on a beeline straight to the bottom of our tree. And there was a nice, nice deer. I think. He was probably in the the mid to upper 50s. And then there was another one that was probably mid to upper 30s. And they came in so hot, and he drew back. And when he drew back, she's like, you on him? I was like, yeah, I'm on him. And he shot, and luckily he missed because I was on the complete wrong deer. So, so we figured that out after the fact of when we were watching footage. And, and I was like, holy smokes, like I'm... I'm so glad that that worked out the way it did because if he would have killed that deer and I wouldn't have had that on film, that would have been an issue because then there goes a whole episode, you know, and when you're talking an episode of TV, you're talking, you're talking money and paychecks. It's like, holy smokes, not to mention the, the cost of getting us to Montana and all that stuff that <sighs> I'd say that was my biggest, my biggest mess up in the white tail woods. Jeez. Okay. So. Transition into waterfowl. What's the difference? Man, the difference between waterfowl and whitetail. You know, whitetail, you're sitting in the stand and you, you have a tree arm most of the time. Well, all the time if you're in a stand, but um, some of the spot and stalk stuff, you do a shoulder, you use a shoulder rig. But with waterfowl, you're often stuck in these situations where you're either trying to film from a layout blind or, um, you know, you're in a marsh trying to film and it's, it's definitely, I would say like camera stability is probably the, the number one trickiest part to waterfowl filming because you don't, you know, if, if you've ever tried to lay on your back and film something that's coming at you, it's, it's a little, it's a little tough. Um, over time it's, it's kind of acquired over time you get used to it, but. And you're trying to, you're trying to follow focus or pull focus on something that's, you know, 
dropping out of the sky more or less rather than a, a whitetail that's just kind of meandering around through a food plot. So yeah. it's, it's, I, I would say, I don't want to throw any whitetail guys under the bus for sure, but I would say waterfall is definitely harder to film than whitetails. Sure. Sure. It's a little bit more, would you say it's a little bit more forgiving though, because you get, you get multiple attempts. Yeah. And I mean, there, there's a number of, uh, there's a number of times where you're stuck and you can, you can take, you know, whether it's cutaways of a dog or whatever. And, you know, you know that there's, there's more birds that are going to end up getting killed that day. So you can get that shot that you need as to where whitetail it's, you got one time and that tag's punched and then it's done. I feel like it's I feel like there's more B roll B roll opportunity with waterfowl hunting as well. You know, and I, and I think that kind of falls back to the camaraderie aspect of waterfowl. Yeah. Um, there's all, you know, you know what it's like being in a duck blind and cutting it up with your buddies and talking and seeing the dog work and, you know, shells ejecting. There's just, there's so many things that are pleasing to the eye to see that, um, I, I would, I would agree and say that there's definitely what's, more B-roll. What's the most cliche shot for you? Like, what's the one that you're like, Oh God, if I see another one of those shots, Oh man. It's, I I about sound to be like the Judas a, videographer here. Like. I'm 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 gonna be such a hypocrite right now because I do it, but like the slow motion shots of the guys popping out of the blind. Oh yeah, you don't like that one, huh? Oh gosh, it just eats me up. But um, yeah, I do it. There's nothing so. really, but there's nothing really particularly entertaining for me to see. Uh, a man <laughs> popping up out of his blind. I don't know. I think used as it's, a, it's, it's all a little bit used, dramatic. Yeah, and it's like used as a cutaway. That's kind of, I guess you're trying to build the anticipation, but at the end of the day, it's like, you know, maybe build the anticipation be him jumping out of the layout blind and then nothing getting shot. But it's, yeah, I, I would say the, 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 Exits out of the layout blind are definitely the most cliche shots for me. How do you do? Because then, then you can you tell sound? too. I don't mean to interrupt. Then you can tell completely. No, sorry, go ahead. You can tell completely when they're staged. Or like the oh. call shots where they're staged. Like, you know, there's a guy leaning up against a tree and there's a guy filming straight at, straight at him while he's uh-huh. calling. You know, it's like, yeah, so that guy was standing in the middle of the kill hole. Mm, yeah, I'm probably gonna I'm gonna piss so many people off by saying that. And like You're I said, I'm a hypocrite because because I've done them too. But I would say those are the those are the shots when you see you're like, come on, it was great until that part. <laughs> okay, how do you how do you guys do sound out there? Like, do you also have to then now become like a professional sound engineer guy, or what's that about? Like. Um, most of the time, what I run is I'll run one camera set up with a long lens and then I'll have a, a mirrorless camera set up for, um, you know, basically run and gun style stuff. And most of the time with that, I'll have my, my shotgun mic on my camera with the long lens. 
and then I'll have a wireless mic on the uh the B-roll camera. Sometimes I'll I'll run a road shotgun mic on the the B-roll camera as well, but um I like I like myself using a wireless mic. I just think that it's a uh, I don't I'm not 100% technical, but I think it's a omnidirectional or whatever they call it. So it's, it's yeah. just capturing yeah. the, just capturing the sound right in front of it rather than everything around. Sure. Uh, so, I mean, have you ever had any videos where you came back and you were, Oh, damn it. I, the fuzzy fell off of this thing and it's just all blown out. Now I got to put some music montage over it when it was actually a really cool organic scene, something like that. Uh, definitely. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I've, I wouldn't say recently, but in, in my younger days, it was like when I didn't really know a lot about the audio factor of things, I would get something that I would come in and it would be, you know, it would blow past the, the waveforms were through the roof and it was like, man. Mm-hmm. And you try to fix it, and you you do everything you can, and then at the end of the day, you end up just dropping the audio track and putting a song over it. Yeah, and I think uh, what you were talking about, because I I can't, I guess I can't let it slide since I'm supposed to be like a a sound slash podcast guy. It's if it's only you know it's cardioid uh, when it's only just picking up the thing in front of it, and omnidirectional is picking up everything around it. See, there you go. I was completely wrong. Well, I also Googled it. I don't, so people are going <laughs> to, people are going to like hear me typing and go, that, that mofo right there. He just Googled that. But I was like, Oh, I, I can't get that wrong. Um, I can't get that wrong because, uh, I'll get roasted for it or something. And, and of course I 99% sure I knew it, but can't be wrong on these things. People, but you, you know, you know. Buddy. And you know what, too, to me, it's like audio is a whole different beast. And I, I openly admitted that for me, I'm no, I'm no genius when it comes to the audio. I know what works for me and, and that's what I'm going to use. Um, at the end of the day, if, if some client is worried that, uh, if a client's worried about what mic I'm using isn't, isn't the right setup, then, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what to say yeah. about that. Yeah, dude, I, you know, like from coming from a podcast, and like I know the answer to the test. I know it. I know what I got to do. But for me, like it's the, there's, I work freaking 60 hours a week, not including the stuff I put into my podcast. And so it's, it's really hard. Uh, well, not really hard. It just, it's time consuming to get great, great audio. I'd give myself a B you know, B plus maybe in the audio department, but to get yourself to an A or an A plus, uh, you know, that's an extra, that's time, you know? Yeah. And there's and, a lot, there's uh, a lot that goes into it too. You know, yeah, it's cost, it's very it's cost of equipment. It's, it's time. It's, uh, people I, I have degrees of, in that. Yeah. And so. it's, it's here, here we are a bunch of people that are self-taught more or less. Yeah, can't even figure out omnidirectional versus cardioid without Google. Uh, and we're supposed to, we're on a podcast. So, okay, uh, let's talk a little, let's talk about some projects that you got going on. Um, I think first, let's lead off with, um, 
the the Tony Vandemore stuff. Just go big first. Yeah. Um, the project, uh, we just wrapped up. Well, I just wrapped up the eighth episode actually today of the glory days. Um, that was kind of a concept that we came up with last year. Um, we actually came up with it when I was down there filming for his hardcore stuff and then figured out that we were going to, uh, we were going to give it a whirl and, and try it out and, he and his uh his wife Kate were very very helpful along the process and they were they were looking forward to it and so we kind of just went for it and uh it's it's done really well it's it's got awesome reviews and you know one thing that i found that was extremely odd in this day and age and now that i say this someone's probably going to go do it but is in all the episodes that we've dropped there's not been one negative comment about whether it be a bird shot or the way something was. I mean, every it's everybody likes it. It, it shows the workload involved. It shows it really shows Habitat Flats and and what it is. Yeah, that, well, that's pretty crazy that you don't have any negative comments yet. Um, I, I I wrestled with myself. Well, I was going to ask this because I've I've had Tony on the show before. And it was, I, I had to like stop him from talking about like, uh, kids and life and all this other stuff, like to, so that we could start the, the show. Cause I was like running out of time. Um, <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not kidding. Like my impression of him is, is that he is a just, and I'm, I'm nobody, you know, on this scale. And, uh, especially, especially on episode number 16 uh, of the foul front waterfowl podcast. And he was, taking his time and he just talked to me like I was so impressed with him. You know, and I, I, I think that is one of the, the most common misconceptions is, you know, people see the success that he's had and, and has for all that, that matter with Habitat Flats. And I mean, but now he just, everything he's done is incredible. And what he's done for the, the industry is, is awesome. But, Tony is like, you know, some people give him a bad rap, say he's holding ducks and hot cropping and all that stuff. You know what? The guy knows what he's doing. He's doing it for a reason. He's killing ducks day in and day out. And if you were to sit down and talk to him at the table, he's the most humble guy you'll ever meet, which is, to me, that is that is very impressive. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um. And so you've got eight episodes. How many are out right now? There is the seventh episode just launched uh, yesterday on Wednesday. They they come out every Wednesday at five o'clock. And you got to turn and burn that stuff, man. What's that? You have to like turn and burn that. You just finished up today with episode eight filming, right? Yeah. So. It kind of, um, there's been a change in schedule with it. So what we did was we filmed all last fall and that was to be ready by July 17th, the launch date. So I had a lot of time to work on those and then came up with a new concept for this year. Um, the episodes are going to be shorter and they're going to be every week. So going forward now, every Wednesday at five, there will be 
a glory days episode that'll be in between three and five minutes. So that will, that will showcase the previous week at Habitat Flats. Awesome. Awesome. And you, you also did the, the hardcore intro, right? Uh, where it was like, you know, they were introducing him and you couldn't tell who it was. I kind of knew who it was. Um, yeah, that was, um, that was the first project that I had worked on with Tony. Um, and obviously Rusty and the guys over at hardcore, they, they contacted me and, and got me in on that project. And that was, that was a lot of fun. And I was, I was very happy with how that turned out. Yeah, no, that was great. That was good. Um, talk a little bit before we get into your next project that I want to talk about. Uh, talk of kind of about hardcore. Tell me, tell me a little bit about the hardcore story. Hardcore brands, excuse me. So with hardcore brands, um, I had a buddy that I actually raced with at the time and he, he worked down there. They're only about an hour from me. So he was working down there and he got me in to be on their, you know, their promotional staff or their field staff, whatever you want to call it. And man, I want to say it was 2015. They underwent some management changes and, um, some stuff with employees and Rusty was, Rusty was brought on and, uh, he, he took a liking to the content that I was doing and he reached out to me about doing some, uh, some waterfall stuff for him. So Rusty was, he was huge in my outbreak with waterfall. Yeah. He's for a, sure. he's a cool guy. Yeah. Rust, Rusty's a, a good dude. I, I owe a lot of credit to him. He's, he's, he's gotten me in contact with a lot of people in this industry. Yeah, for sure. Uh, the, you know, I think hardcore brands, I don't think it gets talked a lot about in the, the tribe, you know, the, the kind of who we're talking about with that. And, and, uh, I, I don't know. They are, they're not the same. Well, they're not the same company they were in the nineties and they're not in the same company they were five years ago. Right. And, uh, I, th- I think that's, I'm just really excited to see what hardcore, uh, is in the next five years, you know? Yeah. I mean, the, you know, they definitely went through their, their time where, um, it was tough for the company. Uh, product was, I would say subpar and they were producing a lot of it. And then, uh, you know, they kind of took the reins back and they came out with a new product and got rid of the old plastic. And, uh, we had one year, I believe it was one year developing the new material and, uh, the new decoy lines and seeing how they held up and whatnot. And I think right now, as it stands with hardcore, there's a lot of people that I don't want to sell them on hardcore, but at the same time I do, they, they need to, they need to rethink their option with hardcore because hardcore is, they are definitely a proven decoy at this point. And as far as I'm concerned, they're indestructible. Okay. So Ty, um, and, and that project, you want to talk a little bit about that? Man, that, yeah. Um, so this, yeah, it was just this week we launched that project and, uh, 
Ty Hockett. He's he's a C five quadriplegic out of a little bit south of Dayton, Ohio. I think he's south or southwest. And I actually came across him on Instagram, and I saw I saw his pictures of him working dogs and and doing everything that that he does. And you know, he was doing it just like an able bodied person. And I'm like, holy smokes! You know, I want to know this kid's story. I, Instantly when I saw his pictures, I was intrigued. So I actually kind of went out on a limb with him and I just sent him a message on Instagram and I was like, Hey man, I, this is what I do. I make videos. I, I tell stories. Like I would love to hear your story and, and, uh, you know, all the details if you'd be willing to be willing to open up and tell me. So man, it was like the next day we got on a call. He told me his whole story and I, I thanked him and, I sat for a couple of days and made up the decision that I I wanted to help him out and I wanted to share his story with the world. So I called him back and asked him what he thought about it and he was all for it. So it was uh, maybe a month or two later and me and a buddy out of Kansas City, he uh, has a production company out there. We We headed out to Miamisburg and started our first shoot with him. So that was a that was a crazy project. We had shot with him out in Miamisburg for a weekend and then he came to Illinois for our opener last year and we shot here and then he was here for like 5 days that time and I uh, actually built a wheelchair ramp on the front of my house so he could get in. <laughs> and uh I had him I had the poor guy sleeping on a mattress in my office him and his wife and then uh yeah, we we filmed again late season and then got a little bit of content in March of this year. And then uh, the editing process started and came up with a storyboard. Yeah, I, I'm having I'm full disclosure for everybody here. I usually try to like, keep a little mystery to what the next episode's going to be uh, or something like that. But I'm going to have Ty on uh, here pretty shortly, kind of talk about his story and then, uh, you know, kind of talk about some of the stuff we take for granted uh, and uh, how, how he gets after it. And just, I think just the, right there, the really the, the one thing about Ty is, is like seeing that fire, you know, a lot of dudes, a lot of dudes would have rolled over. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I can't, I don't, I don't want to spill the beans for the rest of the people that are going to listen to that episode, but just to actually be around him and see the stuff that he does is incredible. Cause it, I mean, just, just, it, it is unreal. It's like, how, how do you do that? <laughs> you know, you know, his legs don't work. Ty, how do you do that? And he is, he's a jokester. You got to watch out for him. He, he might, he might act serious all the time, but man, he is, uh, once he gets loosened up around you, he, he definitely has the one liners. <laughs> awesome, man. Awesome. Okay. Last project I want to talk to you about the weekender project. The Weekender Project. So what we're doing is, um, and this is kind of, this is kind of a self-funded project, uh, kind of bringing it back to the roots of, you know, filming content for, for, I guess, free and, and putting it out there for people for free. And, uh, we just want to show everyone in the industry that I don't want to say everyone in the industry. We want to show people that, you know, everybody out there is just like one another. You have to work to hunt. 
And uh, I teamed up with a local dude around here that's been, he's been running a little crew called Last Call Waterfall for, gosh, years and filming. And uh, we linked up and came up with the concept. And yeah, so this fall, we're going to, we're going to be attacking it. It's going to be, it's going to be real cool. We're going to follow some, basically the concept is we're going to follow people that are, you know, working a nine to five just so that they can hunt Saturday and Sunday. And I think it's a project that a lot of people are going to be, be able to relate to and uh, it should do well. It's going to be fun. We're going to have fun with it. It's, it's going to be cool not being under any contract. So if we want to use some hip hop music or do some crazy shots, we're going to do everything we can to, to get that done. Yeah. I never realized how expensive, um, you know, mainstream music is until I wanted a little bit of that in there. It's, it's going to be, it's going to be different. We're going to have fun with it. Um, we got some ideas that are going to be some shots that are going to be real interesting, but they're going to be even harder to get. But once we get them, it'll be a shot of, wow, that was cool. And that's, yeah, that's kind of what we're setting out to do. We want, we want stuff that's eye catching and, uh, Stuff that people are going to like and they're going to relate to. What What have you shot already? Can you give us a uh, taster? We, we got we got a couple couple shoots up our sleeve. Uh, we'll just have to we'll have to. We'll have to <laughs> so let no, the world no, you, we don't get a taster. We <laughs> yeah, no, no, no taste yet. Uh, the only thing I will say that we film that I'll admit to filming so far is just teal scouting, uh, teal scouting some general around town stuff. But uh yeah, it's it's gonna be a fun project. Definitely throwing it back to the roots and having fun with it. Never gonna take it serious. Uh, yeah, we were you know, we were talking earlier there's kind of there's this thing out there where if you're not wearing this thing, if you're not shooting this thing, and if you're not uh stacking that tailgate full and hell like I am. I like seeing a stacked tailgate just as much as anybody does. I really do. For me, it tells me like a, I, I can look back at that that tailgate pick and go, "Oh yeah, that was the day we shot." Uh, you know, this, 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 and that. I remember that day. Look at yeah, look at those birds. I remember those. And it's it's a good recall for me. But there's there's kind of this thing where why the the weekend warrior is a kind of a bad connotation now it's like oh you're just a weekend warrior or you're just a duck dynasty guy you know and uh man buddy that's like a lot that's everyone like that's most of that's most hunters and uh i mean why we those dudes you know they're that's what they're thinking about when they're punching that clock at you know 5 p.m and they're thinking about getting out to the to the to the blind with their buddies and i don't know it's i just got it's kind of sucks to to know that Unfortunately, uh, we kind of have this thing where we, you know, that's a bad thing. Yeah. And, and I, you know, that's, that's the worst part of it. And I don't know if I've been hanging around Tony Vandemore too much or what, but one thing he always says is as hunters, you know, united, we stand divided, we fall. And I mean, that's the thing is Everybody's just got to chalk it up. It doesn't matter what 
what collar you're blowing, what clothes you're wearing, or what gun you're shooting. Everybody's out there to do the same thing. You're out there to shoot your birds and have fun. Not every day is going to be perfect. Not every day is going to have a limit. And, you know, that that's what that's what the world needs to see. That's what, you know, people need to relate to that. That not every day is going to be a full limit. Not every day is going to be a great day in the field. But I think with social media, things have just gotten so out of hand where if you don't kill a limit every time you go out, you're not a serious hunter. or You don't have the credibility to be a, a duck hunter or a goose hunter, so to speak. And yeah, that's, uh, my- that's, that's kind of our objective with the weekenders is to show people that it's all right. Like it doesn't matter. Whatever you do, if you're having fun, if you're, if you're doing what you want to do, that's all that matters. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good message. And I, I need to do a better job of promoting that message as well. Uh, because I do, I, I feel that way. And it's, it's tough because nobody likes, uh, being the guy in the room that thinks that somebody might think that, uh, uh, that dude's a better duck hunter than that guy because, we, man, damn it, I think about ducks. Anytime my mind is not on work or like my family, where does it drift to? It drifts to ducks. It's something I care very deeply about. And I don't, you know, I don't really take too fondly to somebody else thinking uh, that somebody might be more into it than I am. You know, it's just kind of a, like a human nature thing. It's a flaw. It's a character flaw. It's a, it's a fallacy. It's, but I, I think it, it speaks very true to kind of, you know, that's, I think, I think a lot of people feel that way. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I don't know. Asinine, if you will. People yeah. just want to hunt. Right. People want to have fun. And yeah. it's just, it's gotten, gotten too out of hand. It needs to get back to the roots. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Be, be happy with your three ducks and, uh, the fact that you got to drink coffee with your buddies in the morning. Um, yeah. And you weren't, uh, you weren't sleeping in. Yeah. Even any, any ducks, any geese. I mean, you go out, you kill one bird. Good job. You did it. You go out and you get skunked. You got to, you got to sit in your blind and watch the world wake up, have fun with your friends and you're there breathing for another day. That's what you need to be That's thankful right. for. The sun rose. <laughs> oh man. The sun rose. So all right, brother. Hey, what can we be seeing from you next? Next up, I would say a uh man, I I'm headed to Saskatchewan in the end of September, up there to Tony's Central Prairie Lodge. And we're gonna be doing a little video work up there and then going to be doing some videos down at uh, the grand, his new facility. So we'll have a little oh, bit yeah. of, have a little have bit you, of work have you had eyes on that, that yet? I have. I, that's actually cool. I've got to document the whole process of yeah. from before the dirt was even broke. So it's, that how, place is I guess, incredible. <laughs> how quickly has that gone up? Cause I, I guess I was thinking that it was, like they got delayed because of the the flooding, right? I, I I thought that was I thought there was a whole thing about that. Maybe I'm not very yeah, well versed in it. I don't. 
I believe what happened was when it flooded, some of the, the contractors weren't able to get in there. But I would say as far as groundbreaking, I was down there filming during snow goose season in March, and there was still timber up on the bluff where the, the lodge was going to go. And now I just just saw that they're wrapping up uh, doing all the cabinetry and stuff inside. So they are they are moving right along, and that place is amazing. Yeah, that's it that sounds great. Sounds great. It is, and the, then the obviously you're going to be. The Go view ahead. of it is the view of the Grand is probably the the craziest part. I'm not one to get too uh, overwhelmed with a view, but it sits up, up on a big bluff and overlooks the Grand Pass Refuge. So it's 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 unreal. It's going to be a heck of a show to sit there and watch in the fall with all the birds coming in. Oh, and I'm sure that I'm sure you'll give us a little glimpse of that, right? Yeah, I'm sure there'll be uh there'll be some clips floating around here or there. Awesome, awesome. All right, Max, hey, uh Max Ackerman, uh where can we find all your stuff at? So if, if someone's curious to see what we were talking about for the last uh 69 minutes and 30 seconds, uh wh- where where can they find your stuff? You can either check me out on Instagram at Max Ackerman Creative, or you can check me out at Vimeo at Max Ackerman Creative. Uh, most of my work on Vimeo is up to date. I still have some uh, some more projects to throw up there, but yeah, I would say general interaction is is through Instagram. I'm normally posting quite frequently there and letting people know what projects I'm working on and stuff like that. All right, man. Well, uh, have fun with uh, your teal hunt. Is it this weekend? It will be on Sunday. All right. Yeah. All right, man. Well, have fun. Uh, stay safe and uh, send me some pictures. You too, man. I appreciate you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. All right, later, All right, Max. Thank you. Yep. Hey, well, how'd that go for you? Yeah, absolutely. Hey, you ever been sitting in front of your TV just wondering why you can't catch the latest episode of The Foul Front right there in your living room so you can press all your guests and family with your fine taste and podcast listening? Me neither. But hey, as a part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective, you can now find The Foul Front and some other great podcasts on your Apple TV, your Roku, your Amazon Fire Stick, Smart TV, even your gaming console just by downloading the Waypoint app. And heck, while you're there, they got over 2,500 hunting and fishing shows on demand. Go download the Waypoint app today. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. On Mondays, head offshore with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep-sea adventures. Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Double. He's jumping, he's jumping, he's jumping. Oh! oh. Look at that Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tell a few fish stories along the way. On Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.